Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number. We'll have more time for your phone calls. A lot more still to get to in the program here this afternoon. But I want to get right to our next guest. And I think this is a really important and a fascinating conversation. Uh, Brent Myers realized the dream that, that so many young Canadians have of making it to the NHL. But it's not an experience that ended well for him. In fact, he is, I believe, the only player to receive a lifetime ban from the NHL. That occurred in 2006. Uh, so a lot of promise uh, in, in uh, his career ended in battling addiction, run-ins with the law. Brad Myers, though, turned that around. 13 years now sober. He's been working with the NHL Kings as uh, a sobriety coach. And so I think has a lot of insights on, on battling those demons, uh, having second chances, dealing with addiction. And I think there's some implications uh, maybe here for, for the sport itself. He's written about all of this uh, in a fascinating new book, which is called Painkiller, a memoir of big league addiction. Brant Myers joins us on the line here this afternoon. Brant, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. So listen, I mean, this is a very raw, honest, unflinching kind of look at at all of this. And, you know, your own childhood, your hockey career, right up to the NHL. And I'm sure it was uh, difficult, maybe at times a cathartic process for you. But why did you want to do it, first of all? Well, it all started uh, when I was in my fifth treatment center um, in the National Hockey League. uh, Put their hand out again for one more shot. (laughs) That they were going to pay for. So I was sitting in the in my hospital in the treatment bed, and I thought, you know what, this is incredible. I said, they, I, you know, I need to give back. So I started writing a proposal for the league that I could be a sober liaison. And then uh, I thought, you know what, I'm hey, I'm just going to start writing uh, some memories as a child. And then I started doing that. And then all of a sudden, I just I fell in love with the process, and I didn't know where it was going to go. It wasn't even supposed to be a book. And then uh, when I got hired by L.A. in 2015, I was about halfway sort of done. I put it on the shelf uh, for three years. And then when I was done, Penguin Random House called me and said, hey, would you consider finishing it? And who we are today. Uh, you know, and it's interesting. You mentioned Bob Probert in, in the uh, in the introduction, in the prologue. And, you know, I think people know Bob's tragic story all too well. And. You know, you see parallels, obviously, when it comes to enforcers and, and some of the demons you guys all deal with. I, I know there are a lot of things, including and especially your daughter, that were turning points for you. But I just I wonder when you see and you reflect on you know, what happened with Bob Probert and others like him. I mean, do you, you feel fortunate that you didn't end up on, on that kind of a tra- trajectory? Well, yeah, I mean, fortunate. 
I don't know what you want to call it. I can't even put a finger on it to tell you the truth. I mean, they told me after my fourth suspension for cocaine that they were done. They were washing their hands. It's over. No more money's left. So when I went to my fifth one, it was just a miracle that, that I got that assistance because I was broke when I got out of the game. After making millions of dollars, I had, I think, I don't know, $300 left in the bank. Um, driving my dad's used Jeep because I couldn't, uh, I couldn't afford to get a vehicle and then sleeping on a couch. I mean, it was looking really grim for me. So believe me, I was on this, on the same trajectories as, as some of those guys, but I, I found a way to take my finger and stop pointing it outwards. And I had to take my hand and flip it around and point it at Brandt and go at some point you have to take responsibility for your actions. And if you want to clean your life up, it's got to start with step one, which is admitting you were powerless over alcohol and drugs, and that you seriously need to get honest about, you know, some help. Are you able to pinpoint, you know, because there's so much that goes into to uh, drug abuse, drug addiction. But I mean, for you, do you when you look back, do you, can you pinpoint where it kind of began for you or where things started mm-hmm. to go sideways? Yeah, I, I, I think that I never really drank because I was playing in Portland for the Winterhawks when I was 16, so the, the uh, drinking age was 21. But I got traded to Lethbridge um year later as a 17-year-old, and I just remember going to the country bar and yeah. buying Jack Daniels and Coke, uh, rum and Coke. Um, and I just... I, not only did I love the way it tasted, but I loved what it did to me. And as a 17-year-old, you know, it's traumatizing when you've had 40-some fights uh, throughout the year, you know, bare-knuckled fights with, with guys on the ice in front of a lot of people. And I just found that the alcohol was a way for me to not necessarily think about the inevitable what was down down the road. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think we're about the same age. And so, um, you know, as, as you're coming up, I think, you know, probably junior hockey, minor hockey, things have, have changed a bit, especially maybe the, the role of enforcer. But, you know, at that point, that was something very real. And fighting in junior hockey was was quite common. You know, you were an exceptionally talented player coming up. And obviously, you, you need that talent to make top level junior to make the NHL. But at what point did you kind of get pigeonholed into that enforcer role? Oh, geez. I would say right after Midget. Um, my first fight ever was against a backup goalie uh, when I was 15 years old at the Portland Winterhawk camp. And we went out to center ice and squared off after a scrimmage. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, I found out I, ha- I was a left-hander. And then the next year, when I made the team as a 16-year-old, I, I had more fights than any other 16-year-old, about, I think, 21 or something. And um, and then as a 17-year-old, I had 40, <clears throat> 40-some fights. Um, but but it worked. I got drafted. I was willing to do pretty much anything it took to get my name called at the NHL draft. Uh, so pigeonholed, yeah, I would say the last time I played hockey as a hockey player would have been <clears throat> probably my last year junior. Uh, when I was 19, I only had eight fights, and I had to look for all eight of them. Is that right? Yeah. And I would think too, and I mean, there's there's a common thread when we talk about other enforcers who have battled the same demons, and it's you know it's not to excuse the behavior, but you know you talk about the the stress of 
you, you know, next game, you, you're going to mm-hmm. go and you're going to fight the, the toughest guy on the other team and the injuries that yeah. come with that. I mean, what, what mm-hmm. role do you think that plays in something like this? Well, you know what? Quite honestly, our, that job was magnified. But, but if you look at society in general, there's a reason why, you know, British Columbia had the highest number of cases of fentanyl deaths in the last year, which was 1,700, mm-hmm. 81,000 in the States. I mean, that's a pandemic, too. So what we're seeing is whether you play hockey or you work at Tim Hortons or your school teacher, we all have these stresses. And some people reach for certain substances to, to hopefully relieve that stress ours was magnified yes but in general we all go through it as you say look i mean it's it's a double-edged sword because you made it to the nhl you're living the dream you're making big money uh and and i guess this comes along with it but you're not just making money for yourself you're making money for the teams you're making money for the league and everybody else who's profiting off of it Do do you think that there's an obligation there the other way are players looked after, players who need help? Is is there help available to them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's two parts to that question. <clears throat> One is, you know, there's programs in place. Look what the NHL and NHLPA did for me. You know, they paid for not only five treatment centers, which was I don't even know how much money, but they gave me an NHL assistant fund when I was broke which was about $1,200 a month uh, to help me pay for some child support and a, and a, a, a cheap car payment, have some food. Um, they really saved my life, and they took care of me. Uh, the job I played in L.A. was a, was a separate role where um, it was an independent, I was almost like an independent contractor hired, where I'd be with the team for 20 days a month, and then I'd go home for 10, and I'd be with them wherever they went. And um, they knew that it was a strictly confidentiality program so that I couldn't tell anybody about our conversations. And then if there were issues, I was paid to handle them. And Dean Lombardi uh, and Daryl Sutter did a great job of just sort of saying, okay, we hired you to do a job, uh, go do it. When you got banned in in 2006, then, was that Mm -hmm. a case of... Maybe you needed that. I mean, you know, had, had the NHL tried to help you, and and eventually it was a case then that, as you said earlier, you you got to be the one to help yourself. I mean, what what led to that? Well, at some point, uh, you know, there's only so many strikes, and uh, I hit them, I hit them all, and uh, after you're sitting there, after playing in the NHL, uh, and you're sitting there, literally living on a couch, broke with grade nine education and nothing left in your life. Um, the world looks grim. And uh, again, I, I had to take the, the first step, which was committing to long-term treatment. It wasn't going to be 30 or 60 days. Mm-hmm. I went to treatment that last time for eight months. Oh. It wasn't a spin draw. I went for a long time. And I committed every day to go into meetings and, and group therapy sessions, and I really worked on myself. And then when I got out of treatment after eight months, I didn't go into a bar or lounge for the first year. And then when I did go, I went with somebody sober. So I really protected my sobriety along the way. Mm-hmm. Now, it's 13 years of being sober, and it's not a coincidence, I, I would expect then, that 
that's the same number of years that you've been a father. Your daughter is, is also 13 mm. years old, correct? Mm. Yeah. So I got, I got sober on February 18th, 2008, and Chloe was born, uh, I believe, a week later. And, uh, you know, she always gives me my uh, sobriety cake and uh, gives me a coin. And um, I always want to... I always told her, honey, I always want daddy to have his birthday before yours. And if that happens, it's going to be a good year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so, I mean, you, yeah, you're, you're walking proof that there are second chances or, well, maybe more than just, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth chances. But, um, you know, there, there's something inspiring about about your story. And I, I, I would imagine that's part of why you're sharing it. But what do you want people to, to get from this? Well, I think a main one of the main things I'd like to, to reiterate is is never ever give up on somebody, ever. Does it? No matter what they're dealing with, you know, we don't look down on people that are suffering from cancer or certain other diseases. Why should we look down on people that are, that are suffering from the disease of addiction? And you know, uh, if they were to give up on me on the fourth rehab, well, we wouldn't have them be having this interview at the moment. So no matter what it is, I know it's frustrating at times if you're dealing with a family member or somebody that's close to you and they just seem like they can't get it, but you never know when the light's going to turn on. So never give up. Yeah, and, and it does need to turn on right at some point because you can have all the people around you and you can have all the support in the world, but I guess until you're really prepared to take that on, is, mm. is that the, the necessary step? Well, and that's what I write about in my book. There's a there's a part where I got arrested and, and uh, thrown in the back of a cop car uh, with my face in the snow on February 17th, the night before I got sober, and uh, I destroyed my sister's house. I was in a complete blackout. I don't remember anything from 7 o'clock at night until I woke, woke up handcuffed uh, in the snow at 2.30 in the morning. And, um, you know, that was a real eye-opener on how strong this thing is like i never blacked out before and you know i had my sister by her throat and i had a knife out and i had all these and i don't remember any of it so to me that i took it to a completely different level and i knew that if i didn't get sober that i was either gonna end up killing myself or killing somebody else I wonder too, and you, I mean, you write about the kind of the culture of hockey you grew up in, and you know the fighting, the drinking, and you know you go into great detail about your initiation when you first played junior as a fifteen-year-old, and everything else that was going on at the time. I, I think hockey's changed a lot since then, but did it need to change, and has it changed enough? Well, again, I haven't been in the game since, uh, I believe, 2005, so we're talking 16 years have passed. I'm sure that a lot of changes have happened. Um, We never had social media back then to express certain interests. Um, But, again, again, all I know is the experiences that I've had during the game um, uh, were were written down between those pages, and uh, that's what I experienced. I can't comment on what's going on today in the NHL or, you know, in the Western League or what other leagues there are. But uh, I'm I'm pretty positive that it, there is definitely more awareness uh, to some of those situations. I mean, how do you feel about hockey? I mean, you know, would throwing on skates and going to play a game of shinny would that conjure up a lot of weird memories? Or, or what's your relationship with the game? Do you watch it? How do you feel about it? Mm. 
Yeah, you know, I still have it on in the background. Um, it's it's a you know it's a tough thing at times to <clears throat> for me to get into. I, I really appreciate the speed and, and and all that stuff, but the game has really changed since I played. Um, I don't know. It's just it's about speed and 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 you know the, there's a lot of a lot of penalties and a lot of uh, just I don't know. It's a lot different that we we had back then. Uh, the games that we played in, we almost felt like you were at times going to war for each other, you know. And uh, you know, if you played uh, Boston on a Saturday night or Montreal or wherever it was or New York, I mean, we had guys that were were ready to make guys accountable, and uh, and that's gone pretty much in today's NHL. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate it and love hockey, uh, but it's yeah. just a completely different game from what I grew up. Well, let people know the book is called Painkiller: A Memoir of Big League Addiction. Brent, uh, congratulations uh, on 13 years of sobriety. Congrats on the book, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. You bet. I really appreciate it. You guys have an awesome Friday. You as well. All the best. There you go. That is Brent Myers, former NHLer, uh, former NHL enforcer. And uh, quite a story. The book is called Painkiller, a memoir of big league addiction. All right, we got to take a break here. Plenty more still to come. You're listening to Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.